Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is author and artist Michael Benson. Michael, good afternoon. Hi, John. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for being with me on the show. I am uh, very impressed by your work, and we're going to write. A, we're going to talk about a book that you've written that I'm very interested in about uh, 2001: The Space Odyssey, the movie. But first, as an introduction for the listeners, uh, I'll just give you a little intro. So your work is at the intersection of art and science. You are a writer, artist, and past filmmaker. Your new book, Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece, is what we're going to talk about in the second half. It examines the four-year-long production of 2001, A Space Odyssey, the movie, and was published on the 50th anniversary of that film's release in April of 68. So the book was out in April of 2018. And your previous book, Cosmographics, Picturing Space Through Time, came out in October of 2014 and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award. So you've done an awful lot. You've done a lot of art. You've done a lot of presentations and shows and writing. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit and tell me about your early writing career at the New York Times and then how you got into movie making. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I actually was privileged to go to the New York Times right out of college. Um, So I was uh, 21 and uh, I was on a... I was a news assistant, which is a you know euphemism for copy boy, essentially. But I was in a program that was um, intended to allow people in my program to write for the paper and see if they could um, make it as journalists at the Times. Um, and I did a bunch of writing while I was there. Um, but I was not – this was a, a period of time when it was kind of a fear-based newsroom um, – you know, and uh, I wasn't suited for the time, the environment of the times. I was too young, actually. So I got out of there after a couple of years. But I did have two intense years at the New York Times. Um, after that, I was freelancing and writing for Rolling Stone and various other publications. How did you get into uh, filmmaking? then? Ah, well, you know, I had done quite a bit of writing and um, I had always thought filmmaking would be uh, fascinating, but I was worried about uh, you know, the percentage of people who may, who, who went through film school who actually ended up being filmmakers. And I was, you know, and I was worried about getting into debt and all that. But, um, at one stage in my twenties, um, I sort of had one of those dark nights of the soul where I realized that, you know, I'd always wanted to try it. And if I didn't try it now, I would probably never try it. And so the time was now. So I applied to NYU graduate film school. I'd already, you know, had quite a bunch of writing credits behind me and, and, you know, but I was getting a little, and I'd done photojournalism, I should say. Um, so I'd done a lot of photography. In addition but, to the dark nights where there's, was there inspiration? Was there a special film that was memorable for you that made you want to be a filmmaker? Oh yeah. Good question. I mean, there are quite a number of them, but for me, Tarkovsky, Andrei Tarkovsky, the great Russian director, uh, is really the greatest of them all. Um, and he sets an impossibly high standard, but I was fascinated by his work um, and quite a number of others. I mean, Jean-Luc Godard, French filmmaker, very different in style than Tarkovsky, Bergman, Fellini. I mean, you know, these are the greats, obviously. Um, quite a number of others uh, as well. Um, Antonioni. Um, I think the fact that you were born in Germany explains this, right? You were born in Germany, grew up there and then came to the U.S. later. 
No, I didn't grow up in Germany. Actually, my dad was a U.S. diplomat. I was born in Germany because the diplomats had access to the U.S. Armed Forces um, hospital system uh, in Germany. And so my my mom gave birth in a U.S. Uh, Air Force hospital in Munich. And they, they were actually based in – they were stationed in Belgrade, U- Yugoslavia in 1962 when I was born. So, um, you know, yes, I was born in Germany, but I didn't grow up there. In fact, I did grow up all over the world, though. Um, and so I did have a kind of different perspective, I suppose, than, um, than a lot of people who grew up in the States, even if they're moving around the States. That may explain why you went back to Slovenia. Well, I actually went to Slovenia to make a film that's, you know, jumping ahead to, uh, uh, 1991. Um, I had a film idea and I went there and I made a feature length documentary, there called Predictions of Fire. That was right out of graduate film school. Um, and uh, took me four years to make it. And so I ended up sort of just, I don't know, by default, ending up living in this rather obscure city, uh, just, you know, stone's throw, well, an hour drive from the Italian border and the Austrian border in Slovenia. Um, but I don't have any regrets about it because, um, I made a film that I was quite proud of and I met my future wife, Melita Gabridge. And, um, cool. you know, what was Predictions of Fire all about? Tell me about the movie. So Predictions of Fire is a feature length look at the relationship between art, ideology and politics. Um, or I should say actually art, ideology and war, because it was a look at what led to the breakup of Yugoslavia and the independence of Slovenia. But in its first plan, if I can put it that way, you know, foregrounded was a documentary about this crazy group of artists. And it's a collective based in Ljubljana, Slovenia. They call themselves NSK, Neue Slovenische Kunst. That means new Slovenian art in German. They named themselves in German as a provocation. <laughs> um, and um, they modeled themselves as a, as a state. Um, and they modeled themselves as a you know, in a way, they were emulating the avant-garde movements of the early 20th century. Um, and they had a they have a rock band, which is also more of a performance art uh, outfit called Leibach, which has its its place in the history of industrial rock. And then a group of painters called Irvin. And um, and they're, they're all about ideology and a theater group, I should say. They're all about ideology and art and the relationship of ideology and art. And um, I found that subject fascinating because I had lived in, you know, uh, because of my my dad's position, I lived in Cold War Moscow, USSR, and I lived in Yugoslavia uh, at a time when it was, uh, you know, kind of suspended between the East and the West. It was a non-aligned socialist country. And um, the relationship of art to ideology was something that I found really interesting. I've never heard of that. Uh, most of us think of art as Picasso inspiring um, something that uh, is a sort of reflection of reality in the artist's mind in order to inspire people or tell a story. But how that interfaces with the ideology is a, a new concept to me. How does huh. that work? Well, um, you know, what happened in the totalitarian regimes in Central and Eastern Europe in the 20th century was that um, art became subservient to the state. So you have socialist art under in the, in Stalin's USSR artists were, uh, 
you know, laboring on behalf of the ideology of Soviet communism oh, to okay. to simplify. And in 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 the in not in the Third Reich, you know, you had artists who were uh, glorifying Nazi ideology. So did, that's did a, you call that propaganda art, where a particular view is expressed through the art. Am I getting that right? Yeah, but that's you know that that's one way to look at it. But you know, then you you also had great artists like Kazimir Malevich. Uh, Russian avant-gardist, uh, abstract artist, um, creator of a movement called suprematism, who was effectively ordered to become representational uh, at, at, at risk of his life. And so in, in the second half, he had invented, he was one of the people who independently invented abstract art in the early 20th century. And then he had he was sort of forced to go back to figurative art because the, the state insisted on it. Um, but it's not as though the art that he produced in that last phase of his life was glorifying Soviet, the Soviet Union. If, if anything, it illustrated the ideological pressures he was under. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we've got to move on. Um, if, I, if I read your bio right, about this time, or a little afterwards, you became very interested in science and interplanetary probes and space travel. And did I get that right? Because the next movie you did was Tree of Life. Uh, well, um, that's Terrence Malick's film. Uh, he asked me, uh, yeah, we're jumping ahead. Um, basically, uh, I mean, I've always been interested in space travel, space exploration. And in fact, my mom took me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is the subject of that book you mentioned, which mm-hmm. I guess we'll talk about later. When I was six years old, it had a major impact on me. And it was also a time when the United States was landing on the moon, was, you know, involved in a a program to land on the moon. And, um, and so I was, I found that fascinating from the get go, basically. And then in the seventies, um, I became aware that the visual legacy of the interplanetary missions, such as Voyager and Viking, uh, could be understood as belonging to the history of photography as much as to science. And, um, you know, it, it was an emerging chapter in the history of photography. And uh, and so one example of that is the photo Earthrise. I think the Apollo 8 astronauts took that photo. Maybe no, exactly. The most iconic and famous uh, astronomical photo ever taken of the Earth yeah, rising over the moon. Exactly. That photo is credited with launching the environmental movement. Yes. And I, I don't think that's really an exaggeration. Um, yeah. So, um 2001 had put me in a frame of mind where um, uh, that type of material was, you know, how to put it? It was it, it was absolutely un- to be understood as belonging to some of the higher questions in life, you know, existential questions about our place in the universe. And it was also associated with with art. I mean, 2001 being one of the great masterpieces of 20th century art in any medium. Yes, indeed. So, um so then, um, you know, I was kind of stalled at work on a second film in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and um, trying to get studio time, trying to raise money, etc. And um, and then I pitched a story to the Atlantic Monthly magazine um, about using the internet because the internet was very new. Um, to, in effect, conduct self-directed trajectories of space exploration <laughs> uh, 
you know, just on, on my desktop in little Ljubljana, Slovenia. And, um, um, you know, and they said, well, I actually sent the, the, a draft of the piece to them. I had already written it and then we refined it and pub- published it. And uh, I don't remember, it must have been 2002 or something, 2001, actually. Um, and uh, so that led to and, and as part of that process, I was gathering photos, raw photos uh, from online because NASA was, of course, an early presence in the Internet. And uh, all of the photos coming down from one of the major interplanetary missions of the day, which was the Galileo mission to Jupiter, uh, all of those images ended up on the Internet within half an hour or an hour of being received on Earth. And um, I was fascinated, in part probably because of 2001, but, you know, I had plenty of other subsequent experiences that, you know, confirmed my interest in planetary science and, and would it the be, frontier, the high frontier. Would it be right to say that if you can't visualize it, you can't appreciate it, and if you don't appreciate it, you can't support it? I think, think that's to put it? I think that's true. And I'm very visual as it is, so um, I wanted to see what those places looked like, and um, and I converted that obsession into a kind of a you know one aspect of my career has been taking uh, raw image data from interplanetary missions and working, working it in Photoshop uh, and using other programs to composite and mosaic large format chromogenic prints. Of landscapes, and this is not a distortion of scientific reality. This is an enhancement to spark the imagination and connect you. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, I'm going for with this work, with that work. I was going for um, the closest that we could get to experiencing the visual splendor right. Right. of some of these places, um, and you know. Luckily, all that data was there. It's just, and it was, in fact, it was public domain. NASA's, uh, all the visual, all of the data, scientific data from NASA's interplanetary missions is public domain. And it's accessible if you learn some of the tools, learn how to use some of the tools, I should say, uh, to extract it from the archives and turn it into, uh, um, turn it into images. Um, I, I got my start on that with this Atlantic Monthly article because I wanted to illustrate the piece um, with, with images that I put together. And um, that led to a series of books for Abrams. And um, I did finish that second film, but, it, but film became less important to me as I proceeded with that aspect of my career. So you've written several really cool books, um, Far Out, A Space-Time Chronicle, and uh, your third book was Planetfall, A New Solar System Visions, came out in 2012. I'll let, have to let the uh, listeners go research those books. Um, I want to look at them myself. But um, I think we're going to have to defer and go on to the second segment of the show. Um, in the second half, I want to talk to you about your latest book, uh, about 2001, A Space Odyssey. But first, we're going to have to take a short commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with Michael Benson, writer, artist, filmmaker. And we'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. 
I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with Michael Benson. All right. Now we're getting to the good part. This is the part of the show I'm going to love. I want to talk to you about your latest book. came out in 2018. Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. This is an incredible book, uh, a work of art, a work of research. It's phenomenal. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about Arthur C. Clarke and the making of that movie. I was a big fan of it when it came out and followed its trajectory over the years and its legacy. But this book just goes into incredible detail about the meeting of Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick and the development of the plot of the book. First, what inspired you to write it? And then tell me about the book. Well, um, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, my mom took me to see 2001 when I was six years old. Um, It was my first exposure to a masterpiece in any medium that really got me. You know, of course, six is, you know, you're you're uniquely uh, open to the universe, I would say, at age six. Um, And uh, I found the film fascinating, utterly mind-blowing, to use a cliche. Um, And I saw it multiple times after 68. Um, what was your reaction to it as a youth? I mean, did you really understand the nuances of the monolith and the aliens and their aspirations for humans, or does it, or was it the artistic and mysterious element that appealed to you as a youth? Well, part of the beauty of 2001 is that it's a visual, it's visual storytelling at its best. You know, it doesn't need to be understood uh, with, you know, uh, literally, it doesn't need to, it, you know, it, it can be understood practically subliminally. Um, Kubrick made the comment in 68 when the film came out that 2001 puts audiences in the unusual position of having to um, pay attention to their eyes. <laughs> you know, pay attention with their eyes, I think is the exact quote. Um yeah, and, what you know, am I looking at? What am I seeing? Why is this happening? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you have to literally understand uh, the, some of the larger existential questions that are being presented in that film to be completely mesmerized by the reality that he creates. Um, my early, you know, my, my memory of seeing it at that age includes being completely astounded and disturbed and fascinated by the scene where you know, the sole surviving Jupiter-bound astronaut, um, Frank Poole, uh, sorry, David Bowman, David Bowman is disconnecting HAL, the HAL supercomputer, HAL 9000 supercomputer. The look of determination on his face as he goes through the airlock, that stride, that fierceness. No, exactly, exactly right. I mean, um, that really got me, that scene um, with HAL pleading for his life and so on. And you know, and I've, I've met Gary Lockwood and Carrie DeLay um, since then, and, and 
I think Kier is, a, is underrated as an actor. I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned that look of determination. I think he really was uh, extraordinary in the film. Um, so I guess to answer your question, that's really what I remember. I also remember, I mean, I remember the deprogramming scene of Hal, and I remember the utter realism of the spacewalk scenes, you know, the zero gravity was presented. This was so before it, computer graphics. This all had to be done with models. Yeah, right? and in fact, they were presenting computer graphics on all the little screens in the spacecraft um, because they'd done their homework on what computer graphics um would, would would eventually look like, but it was all handmade animation projected from 16 millimeter projectors hidden behind the set walls. Oh, and there was also that little detail of the reflection of the light in the astronaut's face and the glass. A little detail, but it shows something fastidious attention. And the centrifuge, yes. the awesome centrifuge. You mentioned in the book that that was the biggest prop that had been made to date. For a, for a movie, uh, certainly the largest kinetic set that had you know moving set that had been made up until that date. Um, you know there had been some awfully large sets made even way back in the days of uh, silent movies in Hollywood and so on. But but absolutely complex, fascinating piece of workmanship. Um, it was one of the few sets that was farmed out. It was so huge and complex and had to be safe and had to turn and had to have, you know, the possibility to bring cables inside and et cetera, et cetera. So they farmed it out to Vickers Armstrong, which was, a, I think it remains a British uh, aviation company, um, which built it offset offsite, I should say, um, and brought it into uh, Boreham Wood, which was the studio complex, MGM studio complex north of London. And they assembled it there for Kubrick and, his team. What's fascinating to me as a young astronomer physicist was that in, in the early days, in the 50s and 60s, of depiction of space exploration, Walt Disney had a rotating space station, uh, Stanley Kubrick had a rotating space station, the Discovery spacecraft had a section of it that rotated to produce artificial gravity. And we had always thought growing up, I think, that our spacecraft would have artificial gravity sections because that would assist in long-term space travel, but we've never achieved that because it's so expensive in reality. And I don't even see it being discussed, uh, you know, in Martian trajectories, uh, current space travel. So we're going to go weightless for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I actually find that puzzling because I don't think it has to be that expensive. I mean, you could have cables and you could have cables and, and, and spin two elements of a spacecraft and have a connecting tube and so on. Um, and in fact, I find it really puzzling when I read about the challenges, how one of the major challenges of long duration space travel is the uh, loss of bone mass um, and, and atrophy of muscles due to zero gravity. When in fact, known, yeah, well, there are other problems, but, but we've known forever, you know, that you can counteract that by having artificial gravity and it's not that hard to bring it off. It's just that we haven't, have the imagination or perhaps, you know, engineers are very conservative. They're a very conservative bunch, especially when it comes to space, spacecraft. Um, and they have to be really to be safe. Yeah. Maybe Elon Musk uh, has the imagination with SpaceX to, to, uh, to try to do a, you know, uh, you know, he hasn't given any indication of that, but doing, you know, doing an artificial gravity, uh, spacecraft, long duration spacecraft. Tell me about the desire of Stanley Kubrick to have Arthur Clarke involved and how they met and why Kubrick wanted Clarke and how they got along. 
Well, so um, uh, Kubrick was reading everything. Kubrick was a man who researched his, his topics <laughs> from Alpha to Omega. He was reading everything. Um, he read Clark. He really liked Clark. He was he was turned on to Clark by a couple different people. Um, and um, but then he read on the back. Uh, he read on the back of um, the you know in the author bios that Clark lived in Sri Lanka, and he just kind of discounted him as somebody who was too far away to deal with. This is way before internet, obviously. Um, and then um, he was having lunch with Roger Karras one day. Um, this is before he had really settled on a science fiction movie. He was debating doing a science fiction movie, but he said he was reading all. Of it. He told Karras his his you know who ended up being. Uh, vice president of his two different companies, one in the UK, one in the US, and and kind of lead PR person for 2001. Um, he said that he'd been reading everybody and um, thinking about doing a science fiction movie. This is 64. Um, and Kara said, well, why don't you just, you know, cut straight, you know, go straight to the best, just go to the best. And who's the best? And, you know, said, Kubrick. Well, Arthur C. Clarke. Ah, but I thought he was some strange guy who lives up in a tree in some India. Hermit. Some yeah. hermit lives in a tree. You know, and Kara said, oh, no, uh, I know him. He's a friend of mine. He lives uh, in a very nice house in, in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and he's got, you know, he, he's not a hermit at all. And so uh, Kubrick said, well, get in touch with him, will you? And, and you know, the rest was history. Um, by the way, when I was researching the book, uh, I had this interesting moment when uh, I was going through Clark's papers, which were brought out of of Colombo not so long ago and are at the Smithsonian at the National Air and Space Museum in an archive. And I was going through the his letters and so on. And, and suddenly I was face to face with the original letter that you know Kubrick wrote to Clark proposing that they consider getting together to discuss the possibility of doing uh, the first uh, good science fiction movie. And I couldn't believe I was holding the thing. It was kind of a moment, you know. You don't, you don't get the. Uh, I suppose they were using papyrus or something, you know, where somebody said to Homer, "Why don't you think about, you know, you've been doing a lot of uh, discussing about Troy. Why don't you put it all together into an epic poem?" <laughs> Those two really anyway. got along. They respected each other a lot. I think there's a section in your book where you talked about how after an intense brainstorming session Clark had to go lay down because Kubrick's brain was always on fire. Yeah. You know, and by the way, both of them, announced, I got to know Arthur, um, in the early, in fact, I met him in the year 2001. And, uh, even at that age, he was quite old then. Um, you know, my He's God, 17. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, his career spanned, um, the period when space travel was totally notional as science fiction fantasy and, Nobody took it seriously, you know, to the actual thing. Um, and then, you know, 2001 and everything else and his, his great career as a science fiction writer. But, yeah, they got along very, very well. They had similar uh, similar intensity, I should say. Um, uh, but, um, you know, and they had a perfectly matched skill set because um, uh, Clark had come up with these important ideas, you know, um, very interesting ideas about the childhood of the species, his great novel, Childhood's End. End. Right, also the yeah. Sentinel. Yes, 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 yes. So Childhood's End was a kind of a precursor idea to 2001 where a, um, a kind of a, a deus ex machina alien race swoops in and saves the human race from itself. <laughs> you know, um, 
And I, uh, I come to the conclusion in my life that the aliens are not coming to save us, but it was a great yeah. idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we could use them right around now. Well, uh, Clark wanted to get into filmmaking himself because he was influenced by, as you wrote, Robert Heinlein's Destination Moon a few years before. And um, what's, one of the things that stood out to me in the book was that um, Kubrick and Clark were talking about what were the great science fiction movies of the previous years. And there weren't very many of them because science fiction had a really bad reputation. Monsters yes. and cheap thrills and poor quality right. and... Uh, childlike sets and so on. And, and so they, uh, they decided that they were going to do a viewing of Destination Moon and two other movies that they thought were high quality for the time and two of my favorites, The Day the Earth Stood Still and one of my great favorites, Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. If you've never seen Forbidden Planet, I recommend listeners, you go watch it. It's one of the great movies. It was filmed in 1954 and it still stands up today, technically. The scenes on the bridge, they don't have keyboards, they do voice. It's an amazing technical achievement for 1954. Anyway, so they decided, well, Clark was in league with Kubrick, who wanted to do a science fiction movie by virtue of his success with Dr. Strangelove, a movie that did really well. So tell me, tell me about how the as you describe it in the book, tell me about the evolution of the concept of the movie and how they, how they didn't have a screenplay and how they had to write a novel first and all that stuff. Sure, I'll get to that. But just to finish your story, they did go watch those movies. And then Kubrick said at the end, you know, that's the last time I take your, you know, I watch anything that you recommend. Because he didn't like those movies at all. You know, he he found them to be childish and primitive and all that, you know. Um, and <laughs> so we know that we know about that comment because Clark, was was keeping a diary. Thank, thank well, God. That's all we had. That's all we had. Thank yeah. goodness Kubrick wanted to go to a higher plane. Yes, yes. So um, you know, Kubrick had Clark had extremely interesting ideas, as I was you know mentioning, you know about the rebirth of the species and and so forth. Um, and he had though he had been cooking those for years, and and Kubrick was at the peak of his technical abilities. He was at the peak of his abilities as a filmmaker. He'd done quite a number of films already. And, um, you know, Kubrick was really one of the, well, let me just quote Clark. Clark, towards the end of his life, after Kubrick had passed on, he was interviewed for a documentary about, uh, about Stanley Kubrick. And he said, perhaps the most intelligent man I've ever met. So, um, Kubrick was extremely intelligent. Um, the two of them, you know, got along like a house on fire. Yeah. I mean, Clark said that he had to go lie down after a session with Stanley because they would some sessions with Stanley would last sometimes, you know, uh, 18 hours of, of intense discussion. Mm. Um, and um, they were just matched. They were perfectly matched. And and Clark had the good sense to understand that um, that he should. First of all, he was very uh, sensitive guy and. Uh, capable of understanding when he needed to take a back seat and not insist on his point of view. And he was very diplomatic, which is useful for Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick was, uh, you know, very insistent on his point of view. Um, and But Clark, uh, you know, as I demonstrated in the book, uh, all the way into the middle of the film where, you know, as you alluded to, they were shooting without a finished script. They started shooting without an ending. You know, this, this would never happen these Crazy. days. I mean, Big budget production. 
Um, you know, uh, they didn't have an ending. They didn't, you know, a lot of the scenes, you know, Kubrick kept on changing scenes the morning they were going to shoot. Um, you know, it was kind of like um, a big budget jazz improvisation of a certain kind. And, and, and Kubrick kept it in his head. You know, he was he was keeping all of these elements of the film in his head during the shooting. This is never done nowadays. Um, certainly not in a big budget Hollywood production, that kind of thing. And it's also courting disaster. Um, but I think I demonstrated in the book that Clark had meaningful, significant input all the way into the middle of the filming and even towards the end. You know, he was suggesting changes that, that Kubrick incorporated. And thank God, I mean, the paper trail is there. I have the cables. I have the letters. I have, you know, the, their communications, which were preserved in Clark's papers and also in the Stanley Kubrick archive, which is at the University of the Arts in London. So I got to um, read their debates, um, which were intense. And I also got to read um, some of, you know, Clark's complaining to friends about Stanley. And you know, I didn't I didn't read Stanley complaining about Clark, really, but I interviewed a lot of people who would work with him. Um, but, they, you know, those two really had a mutual respect. So whatever complaints were going on were in the nature of um, temporary uh, issues and so forth. Uh, the central problem Clark had with Kubrick was that they had a verbal agreement that um, the novel would come out before the film. And I should say that early on, uh, Clark, uh, Kubrick proposed to Clark that they write a novel, they co-write a novel first and then film it. And Clark was greatly relieved at that because he hadn't written a script before. And um, he was used to writing novels. And, you know, script writing is a very arcane art. Mm. Uh, and um, and so at first it was supposed to the novel was supposed to have both of their names on it. It didn't work out that way. Um, Clark was in financial distress all the time because his his uh, partner Mike Wilson, and uh, you know this is getting into the weeds, but in Sri Lanka uh, was a very demanding guy and required a lot of money. Um, so Clark was constantly funding. Mike Wilson's projects. Mike Wilson's projects included films. So there's a whole subtext or substory, side story. But Clark was uh, paid handsomely for his work. In today's dollars, he collected quite a sum of money, didn't he? Well, Clark, by the way, no. I mean, if you read into my book, you'll, dis you'll discover that Clark was totally excluded from, he had no points at all from the film. No, not, not, not points from the film, but he was paid like Something like $30,000 total, which you said was something like half a million in today's dollars? Uh, yes. No, he was definitely paid. He was like a hired gun writer, but he didn't have points in 2001, which I think was rather, hmm, you know, it, it, it showed a side of Stanley's character that wasn't the most um, positive side of his character. Interesting. But – um, they, so I think they had a 60-40 uh, on the book, on the novel. So Clark got 60%. <laughs> For writing 100% of it. <laughs> no, Kubrick got a percentage of the novel. but um, No, I mean, I mean, Arthur wrote the novel himself, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, it was definitely the result of an intense collaboration. Sure, sure. Um, ideas conceived of by both of them. So um, anyway, you know, Clark... Clark's career got kicked up to the upper echelon. You know, he was uh, – Clark is famously belongs to the mid-century big three of, of, of you know, hard science fiction, which is – Aslan, Clark, Asimov, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Clark's career really, you know, he Clark rose above the other two with 2001 and he never came back. You know, he, he was so um, right. famous after 2001 and the novel sold so incredibly well that, yes, he did very well. Tell me about the involvement briefly of Carl Sagan. I'm a big fan of his and I've had several people on the show who studied under Carl Sagan and got their Ph.D. with him. Um the issue was how to depict extraterrestrials, a very difficult subject, and even modern filmmaking. The, the movie, Interst- let's see, Arrival, not Interstellar, yes. the movie Arrival tried to deal with that. Um, what role did Carl Sagan have in helping them depict aliens or not? Very little. Um, there's an interesting story in the book. I caught wind of what happened between Kubrick and Sagan when I was hanging out with Arthur on a beautiful beach in southern Sri Lanka many years ago now. And um, he and, and Arthur told me the story about how, how Stanley couldn't stand Sagan and said, get rid of him. <laughs> you know, and so I described that whole, uh, you know, they had a but dinner. Didn't, but didn't Sagan advise them to not try to depict the aliens? Well, so Sagan, after the film came out... Um, you know, in a way, tried to take credit for the fact that the aliens were not shown overtly unless you count the monolith, which is, you know, it's not clear, you know, it could be a solid state alien right there. We don't know. But um, he tried to sort of take credit for that in, in a book he wrote later. Um, it's true that he seems to, it seems that he backed Arthur, who said, it's impossible for us to imagine what a truly advanced species would look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Stanley at that time, and we're talking way before shooting, we're talking uh, 64, summer of 60. No. Well, yeah, yeah, I think it was, that's right. It was summer of 64. Um, Arthur had been um, corresponding with Sagan. Sagan had written a paper in which he posited that perhaps one way that an alien species could keep an eye on the emergence of intelligent life on Earth would be through an automated observation post on the moon. And Clark read that and wrote a letter to Sagan saying, hmm, interesting idea. By the way, I came up with that first in my in my short story, The Sentinel, right. <laughs> um, which was the short story that, you know, you could say uh, 2001 is in part based on that story. Um, Clark himself said that it's like it was like the uh, acorn out of which the oak tree of 2001 grew. Um, but anyway, um, to get back to Sagan, um, Sagan rubbed some people the wrong way. He seemed to be a, a bit of a know-it-all to certain people. He was a young well, so guy. Was Clark, he enjoyed, as you described it yourself, Clark enjoyed being on TV and being the technical uh, analyst that people appeal to. Arthur, yeah. tell us about geosynchronous satellites. Explain that to us, please, sir. <laughs> yeah, you know, Clark had a talent for not rubbing people the wrong way. Clark had this ability to disarm people and, and, and get them to share his opinion. Yeah, he did. Um, anyway, they had dinner. They had a dinner together. The one time that Kubrick met Sagan, they had a dinner together. Uh, Sagan was at, was arguing in, on behalf, you know, for Clark's position about how to represent aliens. Um, you know, Kubrick was very polite and very correct and said goodbye to his guests, you know, and waited for Arthur to get back to the Chelsea Hotel. 
you know, 40 minutes or half an hour on the subway. And then he called Clark and he said, you know, they had made plans to get together the next day and go look at the New York World's Fair together and continue the discussion. And Kubrick had nodded and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, interesting. Okay, why not? He didn't want a confrontation or didn't want to be rude, you know. But he called Clark uh, within within an hour of them leaving and he said, get rid of him. I never <laughs> want to see him again. <laughs> so... So he said, do whatever you have to do. Take him to the World's Fair or whatever, but uh, get rid of him. And, um, and then he proceeded to try in many different ways and with different techniques and collaborating with different people to, to in fact, depict aliens. Yeah. So he did not take Sagan's advice, even if at the end um, one could say that he came around to that position. But it wasn't that, you know, that Sagan had articulated and Arthur had articulated okay. All right. Well, thanks for clearing that up. It was not because Sagan um, gave him that advice. If anything, he wanted to prove the guy wrong. Okay. (laughs) We only have a few minutes left. I just have a couple more questions. Um, Sure. I have met Douglas Trumbull, and uh, I think he was a major player, if I read the book right. Oh, yeah. Special effects in pre-computer graphics era. Can you kind of tell us about the contributions from Douglas, Douglas Trumbull? Well, Doug came on as a young guy. Um, you know, at first he was just going to do animations and it, and in fact, he did animations. He did a lot of the, uh, uh, computer, what looks like computer anim- animations, uh, you know, and the, the avionics of the cockpits where, you know, you have all of these, um, you know, read readouts blinking and winking, uh, also on Hal's brain console or Hal's face console, I, I, I guess you could call it. That was all Doug's work. But then he, and he's so talented, Doug, that he, um, started taking on uh, more complex um, tasks and uh, he's probably best known. He's certainly best known for, for his contribution to the so-called star stargate sequence, which was the trip sequence, you know, when the last surviving astronaut is vaulted through space and time mm-hmm. and he ends up in that hotel room. And Doug um, took a previously, uh, invented technique called slit scan, um, which had been, you know, devised and developed in Los Angeles, um, um, you know, when he was very young. Um, and he, he took it and he introduced significant innovations in that, in that, that technique, um, which included this feeling of vaulting through complex abstract, uh, passages of passageways of light and, and darkness and, and so forth, geometric shapes whizzing past you. I mean, anybody who's seen the film will remember. And, uh, you know, one thing that I find really interesting is that the Stargate sequence, in particular, his part of it hasn't dated at all. You can see it nowadays, and, and you know, it's just, it's just as it's done any better since. Yeah. Yeah. We have done better since with CGI, you know, and in fact, Doug, who I also have gotten to know, I worked with him. We worked, um, we worked separately. I I didn't meet him in person when we were both working on Terrence Malick's tree of life film, but I got a connection to him via that production. And then we've met in person a a number of times since then. Um, and, um, anyway, you know, I've had, I had the opportunity to discuss, uh, working with Stanley at great length with Doug and um, uh, but Doug Doug's contribution to 2001 can't be underestimated. Um, it was a major um, significant contribution to the film. Um, but you know, 
One person who actually hasn't gotten as much credit as he probably should have is Tony Masters, who was the production lead production designer. You know, so for example, uh, the Doug himself told me that the that whole centrifuge uh, um, scene, you know, the multiple scenes in the centrifuge with astronauts jog- jogging in a full 360 upside down and right side up and sideways and so on, and all those scenes in the centrifuge, that was, and a lot of the other zero gravity and, you know, and partial gravity scenes, that was a result of Tony Masters, genius. Um, he was a brilliant production designer. Um, the, the visual, the, the look of 2001 was partly attributable to Masters and partly to Doug. And of course, there were quite a number of other people involved, but they were both major, major figures. And one thing I'm proud about in the, about the book is that, you know, we know film is a collaborative uh, venture, uh, but usually the director gets all the credit um, and the director should get a lot of credit, you know, but um, uh, I got into the stories of many different people who contributed to that film across four years of production. I think we're running out of time. Sad, but true. Yeah, we could go on. We could go on and on. I could talk to you another half an hour, but uh, time tells us that we have to bring this to a close. Folks, we've been chatting with Michael Benson about his 2018 book, Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. So uh, thank you for joining me on the show, Michael. This has been an interesting and fascinating tour of the book, a book that is grand in its scope and thorough in its research and impressive in the detail and I'm enjoying it immensely I recommend it to everyone who's got even the vaguest interest in science fiction and especially that movie so thanks again for joining me on the show and chatting about it thank you very much John it was a pleasure so tell the listeners how they could contact you if they wish uh, well um, they could just drop me a line um, you know my email is k-i-n-p-i-x 2001 actually at gmail.com k like Kansas I like Italy and like Netherlands p-i-x like picture except with an x not a c kinpix2001 at gmail.com drop me a line cool cool listeners I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Michael Benson I'm glad you came by and you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.